Jeremiah chapter 23, 1 through 6. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking on uh, behalf of God to the people of Judah. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people. It is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of God. Uh, From this Old Testament passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, The Righteous King. Uh, In my opinion, one of the more devastating human experiences is to be harmed by someone who is supposed to care for you. Whether that be an abusive parent, or a hypocritical pastor, or an unethical politician, being hurt by someone who should have helped you is a terrible thing. The prophet Jeremiah lived and spoke on God's behalf in the waning days of Judean sovereignty. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen a hundred years earlier, and the empire of Babylon was slowly encroaching on Jerusalem and sending its people into exile. And for years, Jeremiah had been warning Judah's kings that if they did not turn from their idolatry and their injustice, if they didn't care for their subjects, God would allow the nation to be overthrown. Zedekiah would be the last king to reign. And despite the looming threats and despite Jeremiah's persistent admonitions, he too refused to repent. Like his royal predecessor, Zedekiah ignored the needs of his people and he he placed his own ambitions above their well-being. In 2 Chronicles 36 and 12, we read that this king did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now, it would be easy to scapegoat Zedekiah for all of Judah's suffering, but those of you who have been harmed by powerful people understand that there are generally ecosystems which enable that harm. This was the case in Jeremiah's day as well. In the same chapter from 2 Chronicles, we read, All the leading priests and the people also were exceedingly unfaithful, following the abominations of the nations. This damaging corruption by Judah's leaders is the situation into which Jeremiah spoke. In these verses, we see that God judged 
Israel's unfaithful leaders and declared that they would be replaced by a righteous king. All of us in this room have experienced some amount of harm from people in positions of power. Some of us more than others. In fact, we so regularly hear about influential people abusing their authority that we risk becoming numb to it. We need to remember that those with influence and authority are always supposed to use that power for good. And especially for the good of the least powerful. Harm done by those in positions of power is especially hurtful because that person was supposed to use their influence for your good. Yet instead of being helped, you were hurt. And what makes all of this so complicated is that we can't simply point to one corrupt king like Zedekiah. In fact, our situation is more like the one described in 2 Chronicles, in which networks of unfaithful leaders instigated detestable practices which impacted everyone. It's not just one powerful person who risks harming you. It's also systems of damaging power. And while you and I risk becoming accustomed to the abusive powers in our world, God does not. The misuse of power is an offense to a God who uses his authority to create life and to care for it. Power which is used to violate the vulnerable and to manipulate those who have been marginalized is an offense To God, whose power is always seen most purely in his self-giving love. So this morning, because we are prone to downplay the harm we've experienced through the selfish application of power, and because those abusive powers can appear permanent, ever-present, the norm rather than the exception, this morning I want to remind us of just one thing. God rescues us from destructive powers. God rescues us from destructive powers. Now, I think there are at least three ways in these verses that we find that God rescues us from destructive powers. First, by judging corrupt authorities. Second, by caring for hurting people. And third... By sending a righteous king. God rescues us from destructive powers by judging corrupt authorities, caring for hurting people, and sending a righteous king. So first, God rescues us from destructive powers by judging corrupt authorities. Everybody in this room has God-given power. That is part of what it means to be human, to be created in the image of God. From the very beginning, we see that God intends people to have power. Adam and Eve used their power to name the animals, to tend the land, to fill the earth and multiply with their descendants. Human flourishing, living up to our God-given potential, means having power. For example, the power to eat healthy 
power that I don't always avail myself of. To be dehumanized is to be robbed of power, for example, to not have the power to eat healthy. To live under a system of food apartheid where only those with certain resources have access to the most fresh and healthy food. But again, we all have power. Think of a mother feeding her infant, a student choosing what they will specialize in, a a resident stepping outside of their building to pick up litter on their block. All are exercising their power. We all have power and we all have the sinful instinct to use our power selfishly. And often when we do, when we use our power for self-serving ends, it results in somebody else having less power, having their power diminished. Think of a parent who misuses their power in their relationship with their child. The child shrinks back, turns in on themselves, has their power diminished, their humanity diminished. But again, we are thinking here not just of individuals who abuse their power, but entire systems. The Jewish people suffered under corrupt regimes. They were not protected. They were harassed. They were attacked. They were chased into exile. And this was not just the result of one corrupt king like Zedekiah. They were born into an unjust system, a system of corrupted power. Eula Biss is an author and a professor at Northwestern University. And in an interview that she did a few years ago, she talked about how at the local high school, Evanston Township, 90% of the white students took an advanced placement class while they attended the school, while only 50% of the black students took an AP class. In the interview, she said, There are probably a lot of factors that feed into that. There's parental advocacy. There's probably some racial bias going on on the part of the school. There's probably dozens of different factors. But then she identified another uh, likely reason for this disparity, something called opportunity hoarding. The idea with opportunity hoarding is that those with more societal privilege use that power to keep the benefits of their privilege for themselves. In the case of the white high school parents, they may use the privileges of their race, class, status, and education to ensure that their children take the classes which position them to successfully apply for the most desirable colleges, which in turn sets them up for a desirable career. The children born into families which don't have those educational opportunities to hoard will inevitably face societal headwinds that their peers will not. They will have to navigate systems of corrupt power in ways that their peers will not. In other words, it's not just powerfully corrupt people who can harm us. It's entire societies and their structures of misused power which threatens those, particularly those who find themselves on the margins of our society. And so what is God's response to this? Well, he doesn't like it. 
This is a passage of woe, an oracle of woe. God judges the authorities who oversee those systems of harm. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Now, there is an encouragement and a warning in God's woe. The encouragement is that those of us who have been abused by those in power can know that they, the abusers, will not win. That we can know that abusive's power's days are numbered. The warning is that every one of us in this room is an authority over some network of power. All of us. If you are an aunt or an uncle, you have some authority in a little network of involving your nieces and your nephews. If you are a supervisor at work or in grad school, your work responsibilities, your familial relationships, all of these are places where different ones of us have some authority over networks of power. And so we have to ask ourselves, Is our authority leading to flourishing? Is our authority in these different networks leading to other people flourishing? The the privileged parent in Eulabis' story does not have to hoard opportunity. They can choose to be generous instead. For example, assisting first-generation college applicants navigating what is actually not a very intuitive process. If you can remember applying for college, those of you who've been to college. The problem with all of this is that uh, systems of power work really hard to hide responsibility. If you find yourself in a, in a corrupt system of power of any kind, one of its attributes is that it can feel like you're navigating through a fog. As though no one is really responsible. And yet, behind every system, there are people with authority to influence the system. My wife Maggie sent me an article uh, this week about the teacher resignations that are happening all over the country right now. Have you, have you heard about this? Some of the teachers are like, yeah, we are feeling that right now. And uh, this op-ed talked about the, the many different reasons that people are pointing to for why so many teachers are resigning right now. But in the opinion of this op-ed writer... The people most responsible for it are the elected officials in certain school systems who actually have the authority to fund those school systems, who have the platform to turn a school into a place of learning for everybody or into yet another prop in culture war battles. Uh, This this person's opinion was that if we want to really understand why at the root Teachers have been resigning since long before COVID, by the way. Right, Candace? We have to look at those who have the ability to actually influence, for the good, those school systems. What's the point? You and I need to use our prayerful discernment. 
to identify the people in authority in the different networks of power we find ourselves, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our extended families. We need to use our prayerful discernment to identify the people who actually have the capacity to change, to influence those systems. Nod your head if you're with me. I know this is a little bit heady this morning. Okay, okay. But when we do that, we also have to be open to the authority that we have in those systems as well. Because some of us find ourselves in systems that are dysfunctional, that we know are not serving those who they are intended to serve. And it's just a lot easier to pass the buck to somebody else. To see ourselves as powerless because, well, I don't have that title or I don't have that position or, or, or someone is older than I am in this particular system. But again, each of us has the ability to use our authority, no matter how small or big, to help that network, that system, that structure, that family, that workplace, that classroom to become better for those it is meant to serve. Amen? So we use our prayerful discernment to know who in these places has authority so that we can advocate, so that we can press when necessary, so that we can pray for those people. And we are honest about where we have authority, where we have influence in those systems as well. God rescues us from destructive powers by judging corrupt authority. Second, God rescues us by caring for hurting people. God just is just. So God judges out of God's character those who abuse their power. But God is also compassionate. Listen to his posture in these verses. He says, these are the sheep of my pasture. These are my people. Twice he says, this is my flock. Do you hear his ownership? Do you hear his investment? Do you hear God's nearness and God's closeness with his people? God is not a distant judge focused only on right and wrong. God here shows loving concern and involvement. Another way to say this is that God sees the harm that you have suffered. It's not just that God sees the way that those with authority have failed their responsibilities in sort of a clinical kind of way where God is identifying, okay, that was not good, that was not okay. God sees the way that that these corrupt authorities have damaged particular people. God says they are destroying, they are scattering, they have driven my people away. God sees the impact on particular people. As God casts a vision for a a new way of life under good kingship, he says, my people shall no longer fear or be dismayed. Another translation says, no longer be terrified, nor shall any be missing. God sees the impact of the harm that you carry. There are things that you hold this morning. That very few other people know about. And those things are seen by God. God sees the memories of abuse which you have carried for years. 
God sees the smiling mask and the assuring tone of voice you strap on each day you enter your majority white workplace. God sees your struggle to heal from relational trauma so that you might reveal more of yourself to those closest to you. God sees the harm that we carry. And God sees all of us. This is an uncomfortable part of the passage for me, but what we find is that God sent the people into exile. In other words, while the people suffered under the corrupt authorities, there were ways in which they were also complicit with the sinful corruption of their leaders. This is what it means to be sinful people. We are both sinned against and we sin. And God sees all of it. Now, depending on your image of God, that is a frightening thing to acknowledge. That God sees not just our suffering, but our sin. Maybe it sounds like a mixed message. Has God come to rescue me or to judge me? And here's the answer I want to suggest. God cares for you as you actually are. God cares for the person, the whole person you actually are. You do not have to become someone different. You do not have to become more perfect. You do not have to become more righteous for God to care for you. You don't have to have only been hurt for God to care for you. You can have hurt and been hurt, harmed and been harmed, sinned and sinned against for God to care for you. God's grace is not for perfect people, but for real people. Any real people here this morning? Thank you, Brent. Let me say it again. You do not have to get yourself together to receive God's care. We can entrust ourselves to God's loving, healing, saving care with exactly the people we are today. Or maybe I could say exactly the people you were last night. (laughs) Or whatever the lowest moment of your week happened to be. Trust him. Entrust yourself to his care. Stop trying to be somebody you will never be able to be. Stop trying to live up to a standard of your own construction that is killing you. Entrust yourself to your Savior's care from exactly where you sit today. For some of us, it'll be the thousandth time we've done that because we lose the plot, don't we? And for others of us, it'll be the first time this morning. You've yet to entrust yourself fully to the gracious care of the God who created you. But there is a Savior who has opened up every door, who has removed every obstacle, who has covered every sin so that you would be known and loved and cared for by the God who made you. Somebody say amen. God rescues us from destructive powers by caring for hurting people.
And then finally, our God rescues us by sending a righteous king. Imagine for a moment that you are the Judean people. The selfish ineptitude of your leaders have left you and your loved ones vulnerable to foreign attack. Your neighbors have been captured and sent into exile. You have grown cynical of even the possibility of good and righteous leadership. And then through Jeremiah, God says to you, I will place shepherds over them who will tend to them. The contrast is remarkable to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering. God is going to send his people leaders who will use their authority for the people's good. We all know this feeling. Some of you can go back to your elementary school years and remember the worst teacher you ever had. And how that year was really rough. And how you were stressed and anxious. And then you remember the next year when you had an amazing teacher and... What a massive difference that made in your life. You remember having teacher X and then you got to have Candace for a teacher the next year. You got to have John for a teacher the next year. You got to have Tanisha for a teacher the next year. And it changes your life. All of a sudden you're excited to go to school. All of a sudden you come home telling your parents stories about what happened at school. That's the power of authority used for our good. Some of you have had the experience of dreading to go into work, not because you don't like your work. You actually like your work, but your supervisor is such a narcissist, is so profoundly insecure that even when everything is going okay, this person finds something to make wrong. And then, glory be to God, that person got transferred and you got a new supervisor. And this person is secure in themselves. And this person has a life outside of work. And this person values you not just for what you can accomplish, but for who you are. And all of a sudden, you come home and, and you're telling your friends about your day at work. And you're excited to go back in the, the, the following week. You've got meaningful, dignified work to do. We know what it's like to have leaders and authorities who use their power for our good. This is what God is promising his people. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right. And the result of this is that Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. God judges wicked authority. God cares for those who have been harmed. And the result is that God's people are saved and that they live in safety. I think that matters. I think some of us have contented ourselves with being saved. But God says, I want to save you and I want you to live in safety. I want to save you for shalom, for fullness, for abundance, for health, for prosperity, for purpose, for meaning. I don't just want to save you. I want you to dwell in shalom. In safety. I'm sorry, that's good news to me. God plans for his people not just a return to the status quo. God is not content to bring the exiles back to a situation of oppressive powers and coercive authorities. 
Now, we, on the other hand, we are prone to reminisce about the good old days, even though, if we're honest, those days weren't actually so good. We are familiar with the longing to return to normal. Maybe at some point in our past, in our more idealistic days, in our more naive days, we would have imagined something better than the status quo. But some of us are so worldly weary that we would just be happy to get back to the way things are, the way things used to be. But can I remind you this morning that although you may be okay with good enough, God is not. You might be okay getting back to the status quo, but God is not. You might be happy getting back to whatever passed for normal in your life, but God is not. How do we know? Like Judah so many generations ago, some of you come into this room besieged today. The experience of exile has been your story. The existential dread that accompanies the lack of physical safety or emotional security is something you know way too well. So how do we know? How can we know that God wants better for you than you feel capable of wanting for yourself? Because God did not just replace one corrupt king for a slightly less corrupt king. One abusive system of power for a slightly less abusive system of power. God gave us himself. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Another translation, the Lord is our righteousness. And in this promise, God's besieged people found the hope to persevere. A day would come when God's anointed one would fulfill the expectations of David's line and rule his people with justice and righteousness. No longer would they have to rely on fragile kings who continued to succumb to the alluring, dehumanizing power. God himself, the Lord himself, would be their shepherd, their savior, their sovereign. The hope of a righteous king finds its fulfillment in Jesus. We know that God wants salvation and safety for us, rescue and redemption for us, healing and wholeness, because through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus assumed kingly authority over the universe. And so with those who've come before us, we pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That from the wreckage of damaging power, God's good and pleasing and perfect will would consume us. I'm almost done. Jared, would you mind coming up and jumping on keys as we wrap up? Thank you. I want to ask you to to reflect on on a couple questions here. Would you be willing to ask yourself this morning, have I lowered my expectations to what I think the status quo can deliver? Have I lowered my expectations to what I think the status quo can deliver? Have I exchanged God's promises for the best of what I think this world can give me? 
Have I come to believe that the corrupt powers in this world have more influence over my life than does the power of God? I'm going to say that again. Have I come to believe that the corrupt powers in this world actually have more influence over my life than the power of God? As I mentioned earlier, next Sunday begins the season of Advent, which is the four weeks before Christmas, in which Christians around the world begin preparing our hearts once again to welcome with joy our righteous Savior. And like I said, as a church, we treat these weeks as a season of fasting. We observe a vegan diet, we stay off screens and a few other things as as much as, as we can. And one of the things that fasting helps us do is to see where we have succumbed to the lies of the corrupt and abusive powers in our lives. Fasting can open up the space to see where we have diminished the power of God in our lives by agreeing with those people and systems which aim to destroy and to scatter to drive away and terrify. This is the scary thing, you all. We we can be living in a way that agrees with the scatterers and the destroyers and the abusers of power. We can, on an unconscious level, have aligned our steps and our expectations and our hopes with something other than the promises of God. And so as we fast, we turn to God with our whole bodies, remembering our total dependence on him. And we are reminded that our Savior is stronger by far than any of this world's powers. Whether that be a manipulative supervisor, a narcissistic parent, our own sinful complicity. Not only this, but our Savior is stronger by far than every one of this world's unrighteous systems of power. Jesus is more powerful than white supremacy, anti-black racism, xenophobia, anti-Asian hate. Jesus is more powerful than corporate cultures infected with sexism, than school cultures infected with cutthroat capitalism than neighborhood cultures infected with everybody for themselves individualism Jesus is stronger by far so I want to urge you today to hear the invitation to keep the advent fast as an invitation to turn to the righteous king who places every corrupt power and abusive authority under his feet. God rescues us from destructive powers by sending us a righteous king. Would you prepare your hearts to welcome him again? I think the way I want us to end this morning is in prayer together. We are, we're coming to the end of our calendar year. We, we, we stand at the beginning of the season of Advent, which is this time to prepare our hearts. And we've 
waded into some uh, deep waters this morning. Each of us this morning carry with us some experience of, of harm or hurt. And so uh, we've got enough time, church, this morning to, to give a few minutes over, over to prayer. Um, and, and the way I want to do that is by inviting our prayer team to come forward. So I know that's, that's Mia and who else? Is that Brittany as well? Um, and I have them kind of come stand towards the, towards the front here. And then I think, do we have a couple extra prayer team folks? Jane, can I? No, not, not um, Ryan and Valerie. Um, and so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, but I'm going to ask, yeah, you all just come up, come up toward the front here. I'm going to ask that you come and be prayed for today. Maybe there's someone you're with who you would just want to have pray for you right where you're sitting. That's fine as well. Maybe you want to come sit by the cross for a few minutes. But we're going to just open up the, uh, the sanctuary this morning for a prayerful response to the power of God in our lives. We're going to uh, allow a few minutes where the Holy Spirit can make abundantly clear to every single one of us that the power of God is more powerful by far than any of the abusive powers any of us have experienced. Somebody please say amen to that. Um, so so I, I know Thanksgiving is coming and I know some of you got places to be. If you got to run out the door, that's fine. But again, we've got time right now. So I'd like to invite you to please, please linger for a few minutes before the benediction to, to come and be prayed for, to come to the cross, uh, to turn into to a friend who's with you to pray for you today. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and 9, we hear Jesus assure us, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So as we come towards the end of another year, how, how do you need to experience God's power made perfect in your weakness? Like if, if we could be just a tiny bit honest with ourselves for even a minute, we could acknowledge how tired we are of trying to be strong enough to stand against the stuff that comes at us every day. And some of that stuff is, is really big. It's, it's deeply entrenched in our society and some of it is profoundly personal. But I've talked with enough of you recently to know that the tiredness that is present in our room today, the fatigue. And so, and so I, I want each of us to experience God's gift today of knowing the power of God manifest in our lives that allows every other power to shrink to its rightful place before the power of our Savior. Amen. So this space is for you. This time is for you. God's will for you is clear. He wants you to be freed from the hurt and the harm which has held you back in any way. He wants his saving and redeeming power to take up far more space in your body than those warped powers which have lied to you and lied about you. So I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray for us. And then you can sit back down. You can come up for prayer. You can come for the cross. But if possible, don't leave quite yet. Go ahead and stand where you are. I want to pray over us. And then I ask you to move to where you need to move to receive the prayer you need to receive. I'll be up here. I'd love to pray for you as well. 
God, you gave yourself over to the powers of sin and death so that we might be saved and live in the safety of your presence. Spirit of the living God, apply this gospel to the places of harm and hurt which we have carried for so long. Let your judgment be good news from the shelter of your grace. Lower our defensiveness that we might know your all-encompassing care. And prepare our hearts again to welcome our Lord and King to rule with mercy and justice in our lives. In the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. So the space is yours, church. I'm going to give you about 10 minutes.